0: Lesson uh, for today, we're going to talk about the new birth, we've been talking about the new birth, but we're going to talk about living out the new birth in this world in which we live in, and I need to give you some, a little bit of understanding of what Peter's going to be talking about, why he talks about it, why it seems similar to what the Apostle Paul talks about, and give you an understanding of what's going on here. First of all, I want you to recognize when Peter is writing, he is writing to a pre-Christian world. He's writing to a world that is dominated by polytheism. There are many gods. It's a pluralistic world. So you have people who are worshipping Greek gods, Roman gods. You have people who, everybody's worshipping the Caesar at the time. Whoever the Caesar was, was basically a demagogue. And they were worshipping him. Of course, you had the Jews who were monotheistic. And the rest of the world was kind of tolerant of them. And the reason why they were tolerant is because the Jews were very separatist anyhow. You know, As you know, the Jews were to separate themselves from everybody else, so it wasn't like it was going to affect the Roman world at that time. So Paul is writing to that kind of a culture. And really what he is writing to them about really has relevance to you and I today because we live in a post-Christian culture. Christianity is on the decline in our in our nation. The rest of the world is basically is not dominated by Christianity at all. And so what you're going to see is what he's going to tell you how to live really has relevance today for you and I in our post-Christian culture. Now, he's going to divide it up into three sections. He's going to talk about citizenship, he's going to talk about slaves, and he's going to talk about family. Now, I need to help you to understand why he's going to make distinctions in each one of these three areas. Because in the time of when this was written, the main accusation against Christianity was that it was against the norm. It was against society. It was trying to make an upheaval of everything that was going on and as far as what everybody else wanted to do. Does that not sound familiar to this? What was happening then, and you say, are you sure about that? Just read through the book of Acts. Every time the Apostle Paul is attacked or brought before authorities the main accusation against the Apostle Paul and the believers at that time was that they were disturbing the status quo. They were disturbing the status quo, and they were advocating something else other than what was the accepted norm of society at that time. And in particular, Roman society was based upon three different relationships. Roman society was based upon three different relationships. And you'll see Peter address these three different relationships. The Apostle Paul addresses the same three relationships. The foremost relationship for a Roman was his citizenship. And while most of the Roman world were slaves, those slaves wanted to become citizens. And you could become citizens one of two ways. By birth, so very few, if you were born to a citizen, you became a citizen. Or you could buy your citizenship. So, for instance, if you read through the book of Acts, if you remember, when Paul was, was captured and the, the Romans came and took him from the Jewish mob that was getting ready to kill him, when they found out that he was a Roman citizen, they asked him. How, the, the commander says, how did you gain your citizenship? Paul said, by birth. And the Roman commander said, he bought his. So the foremost thing is citizenship. Acting responsibly in terms of the government. The next relationship was the slave-master relationship. And you have to understand that was another dynamic that was going on there. Another dynamic because basically the Roman world was made of mostly of slaves. And so there was a fear that Christianity was advocating rebellion. rebellion, And then the third relationship was family. And they were very much a family-oriented society. In fact, the dad of a household held the power of the sword. and what do I mean by that? The dad of the household could execute judgment on his family and not have to worry about it. You understand, so their fiber of their society was based on these three different relationships. Now, you enter in what they call the way, so if you read through the book of Acts, it's referred to as the way, or this Christian movement, or the, or the sect of the Nazarene, and you, you bring in this this sect, as they call it, who's following this one who was crucified, who they claim to be risen, and they're assuming that it's going to strike at the heart of everything, that the Romans and so it's, the Romans are fearful of that, because they're going against the norm of it. So, he's going to talk to us about how to live in that kind of a context. We say, we don't live in that kind of context. No, but we're getting back to it. Listen, most scholars now, most pastors are viewing us as going back to a post-Christian era. We're in a post-Christian era, where basically society is becoming like it was before Christianity became a dominant force in the West. In the West, let me just say that. And so you need to recognize, so what we have here is is very relevant to you and I. So... As we look at it today, we're going to look at two of them, but he's going to give us an overall statement in verses 11 and 12 concerning being pilgrims. Remember, I mentioned that to you before when we looked at it when he said to the pilgrims, you and I are considered pilgrims, and so we need to look at what he says here. Let's look at verses 11 and 12, and I want you to notice he's going to talk about conduct here, how we're to behave, how we're to live in this world. Let me just stop for a moment. For you as a believer in Jesus Christ, who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is not an option. I need to say that beforehand. Because when we get into it, you're not going to like some of the things he says. Especially when it comes to the government. Because we know our rugged individuals of America, you're not going to like what he says. So this isn't me who's saying it. It's the Apostle Paul. And I will read the verse. The verse speaks for itself. And then we'll commentate on it. So what I want you to see is, and then when we get to the whole aspect of different relationships, like next week it'll be family relationships, you need to understand, is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a reason why he wants you to live this way. Because you need to have your focus not on yourself, because listen, when you disagree with what he's saying here, your focus is on you, not on what God wants. And there's a reason why God wants it, because the way you live your life is a testimony to the unsaved world. And so here's, so we need to grasp what he's saying. So first of all, let's talk about our conduct as pilgrims. Look with me in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they have observed, glorify God in the day of visitation. So let's talk about it here. First of all, the urging. Peter begs them, based on their true standing as pilgrims in this world. Here's the problem with most Christians today. We're too comfortable with where we're at. Most of you view it in terms of, this is where you are, you're going to be here till you die. Wrong way of thinking. You need to view it as, I'm only here temporarily and I'm going somewhere else, that's my home. You need to let go of your roots to here and think in terms of somewhere else because he describes you as a sojourner and a pilgrim. Now again, I, I mentioned this to you when we had the first lesson. Don't think of pilgrim in terms of the pilgrims who had Thanksgiving. I want you to think in terms of someone who is somewhere temporarily. is temporarily on a journey to somewhere else. So you don't have any roots here. So I'm going to to be honest with you. As a believer, you don't have any roots here. Now you may have a hard time accepting that, but you need to. Your roots are not to be here. Your roots are somewhere else. And you need to think in terms of somewhere else. And so you hold on loosely to what's around here. You hold on loosely to the things of this life. Do you ever notice that the things that we get most devastated by are when we hold on to things too tightly here? You ever notice that? Especially as you get older, if you get used to certain things, especially if, you, if you've lived in the same place all the time. Let's take, for instance, and, and you, you, there's a tree, and you remember when it was planted and everything, and then something comes along, maybe storm or disease or bugs comes along and destroys that, you get, you get overwhelmed by the fact that that tree that you've known forever is gone. So now what's wrong with that? It's an evidence that you're holding on too strongly to hear. This world is passing away. We've already talked about that. This world is temporary, and you need to let loose of this and think in terms long term of later on. And so, as I think in terms of that, he's going to beg. He's begging me to remember. Look, I am a pilgrim here. It's temporary. It's temporary. You know, it's, it's 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 easy for me to think that way, but it's harder for my wife. We have this discussion all the time because Glory grew up on the same farm all her life, except for going away to Liberty. She, until she married me, then it's been like upheaval ever since. You know, in in fact, June will be in our house eight years. That's the longest we've been anywhere in our marriage. And for me, I was an army brat. Moved everywhere. Don't put down roots anywhere. So it's easier for me. But she's used to being in the same place. and, and And so some of you, you've been there all your life where you're at. And it's harder for you to let go. Especially if you've been in that house of yours for a long, long time. It's hard for you to let go, but here's the point. You've got to, because you are a pilgrim. So think about that. You're a pilgrim. He goes on and he says, he calls believers to live a life where the fulfillment of our desires are avoided. Look with me at verse 11, last part there. Abstain from fleshly lusts, lusts which war against the soul. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, now as a pilgrim, because I have a... I have a mindset that I'm only here temporarily and I need to live in terms of later on. I need to get control of my life. I need to get control of what I want and what what my desires are. Now that's pretty hard for us. That's hard for me. That's hard for every one of us. But think about it in terms of this. As a pilgrim, I need to hold on loosely. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say the Lord presents to you an opportunity that requires maybe for you to give some finances towards something. So like, for instance, you meet a missionary. Or you see an appeal, whether it's through Christian radio or whatever, and you the Lord is speaking to you, you need to give up some funds and help that situation. Now, here's what we do. Well, Lord, I don't have it. I don't have it, Lord. Are you sure you don't have it? You say, what do you mean? See, when we take assessment of what we have and whether or not we can give, here's what we include in our assessment. We include in what we have as far as our bills right now, our habits, and we also include what our dreams are. So maybe we're laying aside money for an addition or a renovation or a new vehicle or this, that, or another. And so then when we go to the Lord, we say, well, Lord, I don't, we don't have anything to give. That's, you know, here's the thing. You're thinking now. You're not thinking as a pilgrim. So you're here temporarily, and if the Lord lays it on your heart to give, then maybe you need to sacrifice in some area and give up, you know, I maybe want to change that room, but, Lord, your kingdom is more important because that's where I belong is your kingdom. And so I'll give to that. And so he may call you to sacrifice in an area. I just talked about missions. It may be something completely different. Like what, George? I'll give you an example. Let's say there's somebody on this side of the room who is undergoing a deep financial crisis, and you know it. And you're looking, again, making that assessment on those things that I said, you know, what you need to live, your habits, and even your desires of what you want, and you look at it and say, well, Lord, I'd love to help, him, but I can't help. Him. That's Again, that's thinking in terms of now in your selfishness of now. You've got to think beyond that Let's remind ourselves, in Acts chapter 2, they sold of what they had because they cared for the individual more than they cared for themselves. So they sold their property and stuff. I'm not advocating you sell your property. But I don't know, maybe God will tell you to do that. Say, that's crazy. No, that's a pilgrim mentality. That's a sojourning mentality. Because you view your brother and sister in Christ as more important than whether or not you renovate a room or something. Do you understand? And their well-being. See, this is the kind of mentality he's saying. So I've got to, and how do I get to that point? How you get to that point is is you control your desires for what you want. And let's be honest. We have out-of-control desires, don't we? Because if we want it, we go do what? What do we do? We buy it, yeah. I mean, we will scrimp and save to get what we want. And that's, that's really a reflection of a life that is not in control of their desires. And so what he's advocating here is, as a pilgrim, I need to have my desires for what I want under control. Because I'm not going to be self-centered, I'm going to be other-centered. I'm going to be Christ-centered in my life. That's what he's advocating here. Now, you may have a hard time with that. Fine, I want you to have a hard time with it, but I want you to think about it. Just don't outright reject it. Look in the scriptures and see if what I'm telling you is not advocated throughout the whole New Testament. Let's go on. Paul tells us that our conduct must be honorable before the unbelieving world. Now, you need to live your life. This is a Look with me at verse 12. You may want to put a star by this verse. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. You need to live your life in such a way that you live your life in such a way that People are honoring you because of the way you live your life before them. Now, you live, need to live your life. Now, here, here's the thing. This, this is every day. You know, you go to the store and the clerk is messing up. and You're getting irritated. Bite your tongue. Period. Bite your tongue. And listen, I'm going to be honest with you. This is a small community. And you'd be surprised how many people know who people are. And if they know you're a church person and they're not a Christian, you're just going to validate in their minds there's no sense going there. Look at how they treat people. But here's what I'm trying to say to you. Be very careful about how you conduct yourself in the world. And let your conduct be honorable. I don't care how irritating they are and how much they've messed things up. You are a testimony of Jesus. you we say, well, they may not know who I am. Yeah, but the guy, three people behind you knows who you are. Or three aisles over. Or at the next table. And they're watching you because they know you're a believer. And they're watching how you're acting. And the reality is, is he's saying to you and I that we need to live our lives in such a way that it is honorable before the unsaved. When he talks about Gentiles here, he's talking about non-believers. You and I are to conduct ourselves in such a way that it has a testimony. The reality is, is you're to live your life in such a way that you, that when they look at you, they see that you're honorable. Now, here's the reason why. Our conduct is a testimony to the glory of God before the world. And in particular, look at what verse 12 says. That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they have observed glorify God in the day of visitation. Now what's the day of visitation? When Jesus comes back, they're going to have to, because you lived your life in such a way that the testimony was good, they're going to have to stand before the Lord and acknowledge That person lived right, Lord. I was wrong. See, you are living... The implication of how you live your life is not for just right now. The implication of how you live your life is for later. And the testimony that you live will bring life or death to an individual. I hate to say that, but it's true. The testimony of how you live your life will bring life or death to an individual. And so it's very important. So there he's talking about our conduct as pilgrims. So now he gets into basically how I broke it down into those three relate, those relationships that exist in the Roman society, which I say are true even today. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. We're going to talk about our conduct as citizens. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we're going to talk about our conduct as citizens. Here's the first one. And this is one that's going to be hard for us. We're called to submit to every law of government. Wow. I don't like that one. But here's the thing. This is especially going to be important as we enter into this post-Christian culture. where, Where Christians are going to be viewed as going contrary to society and rebelling against whatever the government is. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. You need to listen to what what he says here. He is not leaving wiggle room here. You say, what do you mean he's not leaving wiggle room here? Look at what he says in verse 13. You can't take away from it. Therefore, submit yourselves, and there's that word, underline the word, every. We say, well, I don't agree with this ordinance that the borough has. It's not up for you to whether or not you agree with it. You've got to submit to it. Or oh, I don't agree with what the township says I need to do over here. Or I don't agree with what DEP says over here. Or I don't agree with what the or what the state says. Or whatever. Listen, the only time that you need to not listen to when the government tells you to do something is when it tells you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. Period. For instance, remember Daniel? He was a very, They found nothing wrong with his life, so what did they do? They passed a law that said he couldn't pray, so guess what he does? He breaks the law and prays. Why? Because he answers to a higher authority, God. But whether or not I submit to an ordinance here in the borough has nothing to do with my conscience before God. It has to do with maybe I don't agree with that ordinance. And that's not an option. The reality is we have to do what we need to do. Period. And what is he telling us that we have to do? Submit to every ordinance. Really? Really? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm telling you what he's saying because I lack in this area, too, because I have a lead foot. And so this is something that, I'm, when I read this, when I was studying for this, I thought, like, oh, Lord. But no, he's saying, here, because hear, understand, why is he telling us that? He just said two verses before, let your conduct be honorable before the unsaved. So if you do something and you're breaking a law, what kind of a testimony is that? To the unsaved world around you. So, here's the thing. We're called to submit to every law of the government. We're to honor God through our obedience to the government, is what he's saying here. You and I are to honor God through our obedience to the government. So, there's the purpose. The reason why I'm going to submit to laws that I think are crazy, and believe me, you probably have some laws in your mind right now that you think are just downright crazy. You just think, what is the purpose of those? That is not the issue. The issue is, is I'm to bring glory to God with my life. I'm to submit to the... whether if they think it's... I need to submit. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the scope of it. The obedience must be expressed to every level of government. Look with what he says there. He goes on. Look with me. Verse 13, he says, Whether to the king as supreme or to governors. So he's bringing it down to a different level. So I'm looking at, I'm supposed to submit to every level of government. And let's be honest, in our society we have three levels of government. You say, what are they? We have the federal government, which is for the whole nation. We have the state government, which is what? For the whole state of Pennsylvania. And then each of you live in a borough or a township, and you have a respective government there. So you have a government within that level, a local authority. And so as I'm breaking it down, I'm to submit to every level of government because you say, well, I don't have a problem with what the feds are doing, or I don't have a problem with the state, but boy, those local guys, I really just can't, you know. No, no, you need to do it. So, for instance, one of the big things, local thing is, is that you get a permit. Well, I'm just going to do this. No, no, you need to get a permit. And, you know, and I can say, well, I don't really want to pay that fee. Well, it's not like, you know, the money goes for something. It goes for upkeep of roads. It goes for policing. It goes for maintenance. It goes to something. And God established that authority because it says the scope is, is I'm to be obedient to every level of government. Now, here's what He says. We're going on now. Why? Because God ordained government to punish evil and exalt good. I mean, just stop for a moment. You might be saying, well, these days there it seems like they're they're exalting bad and punishing good. That's not the issue. That's not an excuse. You and I are still to be submissive. Because let me remind you of something. I want you to think about when this letter was written. Think about who's writing this letter. This letter was written by Peter during the time of the Caesars. And the time of this Caesar that's living at this time, the guy was a very immoral man. They were not right. In fact, let me explain something to you. You want to know how to act before the government? All you've got to do is go all the way over to Acts. I think it's chapter 26, 27, 28. And you'll see Paul stand before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Now, if you look at their individual lives, of those three men, and it has been done, scholars have looked at their lives, these were very immoral men. I mean, bad immoral. But yet, when you look at how Paul addresses them and how he conducts himself before these men who are morally bankrupt, he gives honor. He conducts himself in a way that he recognizes their authority. I mean, and these guys are not passing necessarily great laws. The point is, is that he recognizes, what does he recognize? God ordained that government. So, for instance, let's stop for a moment. Let's make it practical. We just had an election. And in America, we each one of us has a vote. Now let me tell you what the Bible says. Obama is president because God set him up as president. Now that's a hard pill for some to swallow. Because we wanted maybe somebody else. Or maybe we weren't happy with who was running. I heard a lot of that. They weren't happy with who was running. I heard some people say, well, it's no sense voting. I don't want to be the likely to win. I understand that. But the point is, whoever made it was there because God put them there. He's the one who ordains government. Period. We need to grasp that point. So God is the one who ordains government. See, so listen, let me just stop for a moment. Let's back it down for a moment because I can feel the tension. The issue isn't whether or not you like who's in authority. Or whether or not you like the laws that they produce. The issue is, God set them up, I'm going to live my life honorable before all men, and I'm going to submit to the authority that God set up, period. That's the issue. That's what he's calling us here. Because he's got a greater focus in mind. He wants it to be understood that Christians are not anti-society. And that's the reality. No, I don't think we can say that. Because the Bible very clearly says that he sets up kings. See, I I can't agree with that. Allowing, that takes away from what the Bible says. He sets up the kings. So when he looks at Nebuchadnezzar, he says to you, I established you. When he looks at the king of Tyre, who is also, when you look in Isaiah, the king of Tyre, the representation there is, is also a picture of Satan. He says, I gave you your throne. So when he judges Nebuchadnezzar and has him act like a cow for a period of time grazing in the field and is giving him insanity, it's because Nebuchadnezzar thought that he established himself in his reign. No, God did. See, that's hard for us because we may not like our leaders, but I have to keep a bigger perspective in mind. God established leaders, whether they are wrong or right, to because it's ultimately a part of his plan to when Jesus Christ comes back. See, the hard thing for us is because we are given a, 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 a vote. But let's say you live in a country where you don't have a vote. Let's say you live in Uzbekistan. And you, don't have a, you don't have a choice in who your leader is. The Bible still says that God set them up. And that leader, whether he's good or bad, is fulfilling a role in God's plan. See the Bible over and over through I mean you can look at it you won't find it saying that he allowed that individual. you will say that that you will find over and over in the Bible that God set up that king and those rulers to accomplish a purpose so i can't agree with you because of what the bible what's that our responsibility is to submit to whoever the leader is. we are given our response is to vote, period. But I'm also to accept whatever the results are. You know, here's the point, Mike. What I'm sharing is, is that the Bible says whoever the leader is, God established it. That's the greater perspective. You were saying about God allowing them to be there. That's not the issue. God set them up. I can't take away the sovereignty of it. That's almost like trying to take away the sovereignty from the choice of salvation. You and I chose salvation, but yet God chose us. You understand? Here's, here's the point. Whether you accept, okay, let's take Obama, for instance. Whether you accept that God placed him there, or God allowed him to be there, is really not the issue. Because that'll, that will distract you from what he's telling you to do in this passage. What he's telling you to do in this passage is to what? Submit to government. Now, understand something. In our system of government, we have three branches. So he's not a potentate where he just makes absolute decisions. You understand? We have, a, we have, a, we have three different branches of government that serve as checks and balances. But the fact of the matter is, is if, if I did live in Uzbekistan, they don't have that. They have a despot. They have a, a dictator. I'm called to obey except in one area. Where what I'm being asked to do is contrary to the word of God. And usually that's like, for instance, the abortion issue or something. So, the issue of how the government was established, whether God allowed it or not, that, that's really not the issue. I'm just going to be honest with you, when you look at the Bible, it says that he establishes kings. period. I have to go by what the Bible says. But the issue is, is that whoever the government is, whether locally or nationally, I have to submit. And all that other stuff can't take away from the imperative of the ordinance of me submitting. Because God is the one who ordained it. And the purpose of government, he ordained government from the very beginning, is to punish evil and to exalt what is good. You say, well, that's not happening today. That really is not an excuse for me not to be obedient. Okay, let's go on. Here's the supreme purpose. It is God's will that we're obedient to God. Now, this is one, this, and I think this is interesting because you could excuse what I'm saying and blow it off and not listen to what I'm saying, and you know what? You can't. Because this passage right here is one of only three times in the New Testament where God expresses what the will of God is. One is that we give thanks. The other is that we abstain from sexual immorality. And in this instance, he's saying it is the will of God that you and I submit to who? Government. Authority. So this is not an option. This is why I'm saying, you know, we can, we can try to find the loopholes, but this just eliminated all the loopholes. You, you don't have to sit there and say, well, I wonder if God really wants me to do this. No, no, he just said it. You do it do it. And listen, I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't matter. I, I'm disappointed in every party in this country. And as I look at every party, what I'm seeing is a focus on self and self-attainment. Everybody agree with me on that one? So what's out there for leaders, I have yet to see good leaders step up to the plate. And the reality is, is that, if that's true, if we look at—I mean, there are very few that—I don't want to generalize it too much. There are very—we have some good leaders, but there are very few who are stepping up to the plate to be president. Very few that are stepping up to the plate to be other things. And the reality is, I think we're going to have a slate of—I mean, eight years we'll probably have another bad guy. That's just because the, the country—the country is moving to itself. The country—the leaders reflect the country. They reflect the people who elect them. And let's be honest, we live in a very selfish, self-centered world where everybody's more interested in their what? Their own rights than they're concerned about what? Other people. And so, but even still, even if it goes down to that, let me remind you, can I tell you about the Caesars for a moment, the very people? One of the Caesars during the time of Peter was a transvestite. One was into bestiality. You know what that is? That's sex with animals. Very blatant. It's not like they hid this stuff. They were very open about it. And so this same Peter who writes this letter says, it's God's will that we'll be obedient in this area. Now, I don't know of any president that's doing any of those kind of things, or leader. And if they do, you notice they get out of office real quick. So, that's my point. Let's go on. Our actions will silence the accusations of unbelievers. Our actions will silence the accusations of unbelievers. You submit to government in every area, except where God is telling you not to, and you can silence the accusations by being good citizens. Not picking and choosing what you want to obey. Let's go on. Our freedom is not for our personal benefit, but rather for service for God. This isn't a great principle here. You know, liberty, you'll hear people say, well, I have liberty, I can do whatever. Look, your liberty is not so that you can do whatever. Your liberty is so that what? You glorify God with your life. Because here's the thing. I, I've seen this happen. Here's, here's what happened. You know, before we were so legalistic, we had rules for everything. We have swung over to the other side, to the other dish now where we can do whatever now and do whatever. Because i got liberty, i got freedom. We've got to swing the pendulum back and recognize I've got freedom. I don't need to live in the legalism, but i got freedom. I can't just do whatever I want because what I do brings glory to God or dishonor to God. So you just don't have the liberty. You've got liberty and freedom in Jesus to do whatever, but when it comes to how you live your life, you've got to live your life recognizing you have freedom, but the way you live your life is so that glory is brought to God ultimately. Glory is brought to God. Okay? Let's go on. We are to express godly conduct to every area of our lives. So again, he's going to give that general principle again. I need to live my life in such a way that godly conduct is expressed in every area of my life. So he, took, he looked at that first one, the government. Let's talk about slaves. Our conduct as slaves. Look at verse 18 through 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if I if because of conscience towards God one endures great suffering wrongly, for what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults if you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you, We're like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So let's just real quickly go through these. Here's our responsibility. Servants are to be submissive to their masters, whether good or bad. Now, this is true. The only thing I can equate this to is is an employment situation. Because, you know, you need to be submissive whether he's a good boss or a bad boss. Let's go on. And again, you may argue with me on it, but this is the point that I want you to see here. The reason, God's presence should motivate us to endure unjust suffering. And the fact of the matter is, is you're going to face unjust suffering, are you not? Here's the reason. Submitting to unjust suffering demonstrates God's grace to us. Now, here's the thing. Here's the example of Christ. We are called to live a life of suffering. Now, this is hard for us as Americans, because we're not used to this. This is why this nation was established, was to leave suffering. But you and I are called to live a life of suffering. Suffering is going to be a part of our lives, and we need to grasp that. Here's the other thing. Christ is our example in that he suffered for us. And then notice the response. This is interesting. Jesus did not react to his suffering, but committed himself to God the Father. Our tendency is to want to react, especially if somebody is doing us wrong. Jesus didn't react. In fact, here's what he did. He endured, it should be his suffering, for our salvation and healing. He endured his suffering for our salvation and healing. And then he talks about our nature as sheep. We are sheep who have returned to the oversight of the great shepherd. Okay, let's close our time in prayer.